Oscar Romero once said, Beautiful is the moment in which we understand that we are no more than an instrument of God. We live only as long as God wants us to live. We can only do as much as God makes us able to do. We are only as intelligent as God would have us be. Welcome to the 90th episode of St. Dymphna's Playbook, the SDP, if you want to be cool, a production of the Grexley Podcast Network. My name is Tommy. I'm a cradle Catholic, a marriage and family therapist, a husband and father of five boys, four on earth and one in heaven. Love you, Luke. And I'm here to fill the void of Catholic conversations about mental health because I want everyone to remember that what we can do in any given situation and moment may be limited by our physical or mental or emotional health for some time. But the love of God and the love God has for us will never be limited, no matter what. We like to kick it off around here with a quick refresh of our notifications. It's time for St. Dymphna's Mentions. Paul wrote in with a question that we haven't touched on in a while, and I thought people would find it helpful. What is EMDR? How does it work? And does it work on all people with trauma or only specific kinds of trauma? I talked a little bit about EMDR in episode 24, but that was quite a while ago, so I'm happy to get this opportunity to revisit this therapeutic approach. First, what is EMDR? According to Clinical Psychology Science and Practice, Eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, EMDR, is a technique in which an experience that was traumatic is recalled while doing bilateral stimulation, such as side-to-side eye movement or hand tapping, which enables the experience to be correctly processed. According to the 2013 World Health Organization Practice Guideline, EMDR is based on the idea that negative thoughts, feelings, and behaviors are the result of unprocessed memories. The treatment involves standardized procedures that include focusing simultaneously on A, spontaneous associations of traumatic images, thoughts, emotions, and bodily sensations, and B, bilateral stimulation that is most commonly in the form of repeated eye movements. EMDR was developed by psychologist Francine Shapiro starting in 1988. The next part of your question, how does it work? So according to Wikipedia, the mechanism by which EMDR achieves efficacy is unknown with no definitive finding. Several possible mechanisms have been posited. EMDR impacts working memory by having the patient perform a bilateral stimulation task while retrieving memories of trauma. The amount of information that can retrieve uh, they can retrieve about the trauma is limited and thus the resulting negative emotions are less intense. This is seen by some as causing a distance effect which enables the client to stand back from the trauma. The client is enabled to reevaluate the trauma and their understanding of it and thus process it correctly because they can re-experience it while not feeling overwhelmed by it. Another idea is that EMDR enables dual attention, recalling the trauma while keeping a foot in the present assisted by the bilateral stimulation. This allows the brain to access the dysfunctionally stored experience and stimulate the innate processing system, allowing it to transform the information into an adaptive resolution. So back to me, there are several other hypotheses about the mechanisms at play here, but let's move on to your next question. Does EMDR work with all people with trauma or just specific types of trauma? The 2013 World Health Organization Practice Guidelines states that, like cognitive behavioral therapy with a trauma focus, EMDR aims to reduce subjective distress and strengthen adaptive beliefs related to the traumatic event. Unlike CBT with a trauma focus, EMDR does not involve 
A, a detailed description of the event. B, direct challenging of beliefs. C, extended exposure. Or D, homework. There doesn't seem to be a limit of specific types of trauma for EMDR to target, at least from what I can see. Now, before we move on, I have to address some of the controversy around EMDR. First, I want to say that if people have found relief from their distress through EMDR, I think that's a wonderful thing, and anyone who might be interested in it should look into it and see if it might be something that works for them based on their personality and preferences for mental health treatment. However, there are some things worth noting in terms of EMDR historically being seen as controversial within the psychological community. In 2012, Hal Arkowitz and Scott Lillenfield summed up the state of research at the time, saying that while EMDR is better than no treatment and probably better than merely talking to a supportive listener, yet not a shred of good evidence exists that EMDR is superior to exposure-based treatments that behavior and cognitive behavior therapies have been administering routinely for decades. Harvard psychologist Richard McNally sums up his thoughts on EMDR by saying, what is effective in EMDR is not new, and what is new is not effective. As Wikipedia notes, past skeptics of the therapy argued that EMDR is a pseudoscience because the underlying theory is unfalsifiable. Also, the results of the therapy are nonspecific, especially if the eye movement component is irrelevant to the results. What remains is a broadly therapeutic interaction and deceptive marketing. And last, there is criticism for Shapiro herself, as Wikipedia also points out. Shapiro has been criticized for repeatedly increasing the length and expense of training and certification, allegedly in response to the results of controlled trials that cast doubt on EMDR's efficacy. This includes requiring the completion of an EMDR training program in order to be qualified to administer EMDR properly. After researchers using the initial written instructions found no difference between no eye movement control groups and EMDR as written experimental groups. Further changes in training requirements and or the definition of EMDR including requiring level 2 training when researchers with level 1 training still found no difference between eye movement experimental groups and no eye movement control and deeming alternate forms of bilateral stimulation such as finger tapping as variants of EMDR by the time a study found no difference between EMDR and the finger tapping control group. Such changes in definition and training for EMDR have been described as ad hoc moves made when confronted by embarrassing data. So just in closing, I would like to say that it's important to look at the entire body of evidence when it comes to EMDR. I have personally met people who have found healing through EMDR, but I'm also very skeptical by nature and have had a hard time understanding how EMDR might actually help someone more than trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. So I hope all that helps. I know it's a lot. Each episode, I'm going to introduce you to a saint who can help us along our journey with mental health and wellness as Catholics. It's called Friend Request, and today I'm here to introduce you to Blessed Judda of Thuringia. Born in 1184 in what is Germany today, Judda was the oldest daughter of a noble family. She married in 1197, and with her husband, she set out on a pilgrimage to the holy sites in Jerusalem, but her husband died on the way. According to Franciscan media, the newly widowed Judda, after taking care to provide for her children, resolved to live in a manner she felt was utterly pleasing to God. She disposed of the costly clothes, jewelry, and furniture befitting one of her rank, and became a secular Franciscan, taking on the simple garment of a 
were religious. From that point on, her life was utterly devoted to others, caring for the sick, particularly lepers, tending to the poor, whom she visited in their homes, helping the crippled and blind, with whom she shared her own home. Many of the townspeople laughed at how this once distinguished lady now spent all of her time, but Judda saw the face of God in the poor and felt honored to render whatever services she could. About the year 1260, not long before her death, Judda lived near the non-Christians in eastern Germany, and there she built a small hermitage and prayed unceasingly for their conversion. She died in 1235. We like to close out this part of the podcast with a prayer. Blessed Judda of Thuringia, you gave up a life of wealth and luxury to serve those most in need. May we emulate your works and strive to help those in need as well. Today, I pray we can do one nice thing for one for another, no matter how big or how small. Amen. And now you can't do therapy over Twitter, but I'm happy to take your tweets and help you explore a bit in the hopes of finding a light in the darkness. It's time for Twitter therapy. Anonymous starts us off, of course faith isn't a feeling, but it can be so hard to trust God and live out your faith and just live sometimes when everything including God feels made up, like a dream, like a simulation. Going to church can make you feel like a fraud, attending the sacraments, preaching the gospel, etc. That is definitely more of a topic than a question, but I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts. So let's start by joining together in prayer for Anonymous and all of us who find it hard to trust in God, hard to even believe in God, that we may experience the love of God in a profound and unmistakable way this very day. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. How often do we hear faith isn't a feeling, it's a choice, a choice we have to make every day? And sure, that's true, but it isn't really the full story, right? Our feelings impact our ability to choose faith. Our feelings impact our ability to accept love from God, to love, to even believe in him. And while we hear again and again and again how feelings are fleeting and can change on a whim, I don't really think that that completely gets at what's the issue here. I mean, yes, feelings can be fleeting, but on a personal note, my feelings of anger, betrayal, and a lack of fairness and a lack of feeling loved by God have never completely gone away after the death of my son. They've grown more or less intense over time. They've raised their head and hidden back a bit, but they've never gone away. And they 100% have impacted my faith, both in negative ways, like making it hard to accept that a good and loving God could even exist when horrible things like this happen, and in a positive way, like making me delve deeper into a relationship with God at times and, and learning to be open to his plans even when I hate his plans. So our feelings matter. Now, to the point of feeling like a fraud, attending the sacraments, praying, going to mass, etc., here's my thought. When my thoughts were the most intensely against God, when I couldn't even bring myself to pray, when I hated that he existed and yet did nothing to save my child, I still went to Mass. I, I was angry at Mass. I felt like a fraud, most definitely. I yelled at him in, in my mind throughout Mass, and I barely really paid attention at all. But by his grace, I still put the family in the van and drove to Mass. And I think God sees that. He understands where we're at better than we understand it ourselves and recognizes that it's a big deal for us to go when we aren't feeling it, for us to pray when we aren't feeling it. He accepts us where we're at, he gets it, and he's willing to wait for us as long as it takes. 
I hope that makes sense. A different anonymous is up next. My husband and I are having trouble with our marriage, and while he's more timid in participating in parish activities to strengthen his faith, I feel like I'm more invested in our marriage by being more earnest and being a better Catholic in the hopes that it'll trickle down to my marriage through my full cooperation to God's will, whatever that is. The situation is we've been invited as a couple to lead uh, in a couple of parish activities, and I feel like we're frauds. The easy answer is to say no, and I've said that uh, to, I've said that before, but my husband has already said yes to another situation that we've been asked to help out with. Help. Let's join in prayer for Anonymous, for their marriage, and for peace to flood into their hearts this very day. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy, hear and answer me. Amen. So many of us feel like frauds when it comes to our Christian faith and our everyday thoughts, words, and actions. And I would just like to hope for us all to see ourselves less as frauds and more as children of God moving toward what he created us to be and just not quite all the way there yet. We're a work in progress, and just the fact that we see our deficiencies and hope and wish that we could do better shows that God is working in our lives. To your question, though, yes, the easiest thing to do would be to say no. This really resonates with me because it's my default response to everything, everything related to the parish, everything related to helping out in matters of the faith. Who am I to help out? What could I possibly have to offer people who are seeking to grow in their faith? These questions come up. And it's easier to say no because we don't feel worthy, we don't feel smart enough, we certainly don't feel holy enough. At the same time, though, our authentic witness to what living the Christian life is actually like is often exactly what people are hungry for. They aren't looking for people who live holier-than-thou lives with everything going perfectly. It just doesn't resonate. Instead, they're looking for people who are willing to be open and honest about the ups and downs of life, the joys and sufferings, the happiness, the struggle. That is what helps people to see what the Christian faith means for us in real life. And it's what draws people to wanting to grow in their own faith as they navigate life's inevitable ups and downs. So I would say that it's worth considering if helping out might be good for you and your spouse and good for others. And at the same time, I want to make sure to encourage you to feel open to saying no as well. If that's what you feel is best at the moment, we should never feel like we have to help out at the parish. Sometimes our emotional health, our family life, and so many other things make it a bad time to stretch ourselves in that way. And that's okay. God gets it. God understands. And God is happy to have us say no to the parish so that we can focus on our marriage and our family life, which is our true top priority. Another anonymous brings us on home. What does forgiveness look like with people who are abusers? Where is the line between getting walked over and going two miles when they ask for one? First off, let's join in prayer for all victims of abuse, for healing, for safety, for peace, and for justice. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. Let's start by pointing out that forgiveness is hard. Too often we hear people tell us that we have to forgive and it's better for us to just let it go. And Jesus tells us to forgive, so we sure as heck better not hold on to any resentments. And while there's some truth in all of that, 
There's rarely a recognition of just how hard it is to forgive someone, especially in situations of abuse, situations where people who were tasked with keeping us safe let us down in a most horrific manner, taking away so much of our peace, calm, and joy from our hearts. How can we ever be expected to forgive someone like that? We're going to look at some thoughts from Psych Central to help us sort this out. Forgiveness is not a statement that the crime was not that bad. Forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. Forgiveness is not something that you have to feel like doing in order to do. Forgiveness is not a step you take in order to avoid feeling the impact of the damage. Forgiveness is not lip service. Forgiveness is not something anyone can force upon you. Forgiveness is not the same as forgetting. You may never forget what happened to you. Just because you forgive someone, that does not mean you gain amnesia. Forgiveness has nothing to do with fairness. Here are some truths about forgiveness. It brings healing to the person doing the forgiving. It is more a decision than a feeling. It is a willingness of the mind and an attitude of the heart. It is a process, just as grief is a process. Next, we'll look at hotline.org. So the first steps in the process involve finding a safe place and safe time to process anger and blame. These crucial steps are necessary for healing after abuse. Some abuse survivors find safety, do some processing, and never move on much after that. However, others might find a turning point after this processing period and begin seeking the next positive outcome. If you've reached these milestones and have begun seeking understanding, you might be ready to start the forgiveness process. Here is a loose framework that you might use. Find where you currently are in this sequence and then take a look at the steps that come afterward. Procure safety. Process acute emotional and physical pain, and if necessary, process anger. Process blame. Remember, abuse is the abuser's fault. Seek understanding. Become realistic. Ask yourself what it would take. Open yourself up to the idea. Consider seeking ritual. Invite forgiveness. Stay open. Let it visit you. If it doesn't, seek further ritual. Accept forgiveness when it becomes real to you. So back to me. Forgiveness does not mean that we have to trust the person, like the person, or allow the person back into our lives. And after we find safety and healing, we can begin to better understand that and then set boundaries that will help us to live it out as well. Remember, God is patient with us. God knows our heart and feelings around our experiences better than we know them ourselves. And he's willing to walk with us no matter where we're at in the journey toward forgiveness. All right, everyone, that's it for today's episode and this season of St. Dimpness Playbook. Going to take a little break after that, so I'll see you guys in a little while. Remember, you can email, DM, or tweet your questions and situations if you'd like me to address them in a future episode. I'd be happy to keep you anonymous or not, whatever you want. Be sure to check out patreon.com slash grexley to see all the great things they've got going on over there and support the cause. You can also head over to Ave Maria's website to pre-order the St. Dimpna's Playbook book that's due out in November. Until next time, go easy on yourselves. Take care of yourselves. And if you feel like you're in a place where you can't even bring yourself to pray, don't worry. I'll be praying for you. And so will St. Dimpna.